And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You know, just a minute ago, I read those words from Jesus and I talked about, you know, that they could easily be construed to mean something that they don't necessarily mean uh, when you take in all of the rest of Scripture. Here's another one. In John 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Now, here's what I'm talking about. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, if somebody hears that and or reads that and concludes, well, I can get eternal life if I just do good deeds. What would you say to that? How would you respond? That sounds like what Jesus is teaching here, and it, it, it seems to be what Paul is teaching in our text this morning. He says that those who persevere in doing good receive eternal life, and those who do evil incur God's wrath. So, is salvation through or, or by grace through faith alone, as the reformers insisted, or is that by grace through faith plus works, as the Catholic Church teaches? Now, this isn't just an academic question because your eternal destiny depends on getting it right. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul, he damned, he literally damned, anathema, the Judaizers there in Galatia for, for perverting the gospel because they added just one biblical work to the gospel. What was it? It was circumcision. So we need to get the gospel right. We need to know for sure that when we stand before God for judgment, it's going to go well. After all, we don't get a makeup exam. Now, our text continues a thought that begins from last week's verse 5, or three weeks, so I guess it was now. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So verses 6 through 11, our passage this morning, they elaborate on the righteous judgment of God. Thomas Schreiner, he's a professor at Southern Seminary, he, he says... He explains it this way, the primary purpose of Romans 2 is to prove that the Jews are guilty before God because they transgressed the revelation they received, just as the Gentiles rejected the revelation that they received. Do you remember us talking about that back in, 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 in um, Romans uh, 1.18? Right, I, I quoted it a minute ago. The, the the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all those against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. Right, they're rejecting the truth in their unrighteousness. So the Gentiles have rejected that truth, whereas the the Israelites they had the truth, but they had not kept it. They had disobeyed the truth. All right. Charles Simeon says that Paul is countering the pervasive Jewish view that no Jew could perish except through apostasy or idolatry, and that no Gentile could be saved but by subjecting himself to the institutions and the observances of the Mosaic ritual. So Paul is arguing that being Jewish doesn't get you any special favors come Judgment Day. In fact, it actually puts you to the front of the line uh, because you've been given more spiritual privileges. 
Now, that can be compared to uh, being raised in a Christian home in a country where you can readily hear the gospel, like America. If you do not respond to those privileges, they actually render you more guilty on judgment day than if you had never known the truth. So Paul's point here is this, since God, according to what we read this morning, will impartially judge each person according to his deeds, we must persevere in doing good. Let's pray. Father, again, give us eyes to see, uh, ears to hear, hearts to understand this truth. Uh, this has to do with our eternal um, status. So, Father, speak clearly this morning. God, uh, just I pray that you would just, anything that I say that is, that is not right, I pray that that would just go right over their heads, right through their ears, not stick, Father. Uh, pray that we would hear from you, from your Holy Spirit, and do it for your sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, how many know what a chiasm is? I talked to Corey this morning. I said, you know what a chiasm is? He goes, yeah, I do. And he explained. I said, yeah, that's exactly it. Our text follows a chiastic strict, uh, structure. Now, chi is a Greek letter, and it looks like our X. So that's, that's where the name comes from. That's chiasm. Here we go. This is, the, this is the six verses we're looking at this morning. So A, God will judge every, everyone according to their deeds. That's verse 6. B, those who do good will attain, attain eternal life. Verse 7. C, those who do evil will incur wrath, verse 8. C prime, does that tell you? That's tell you something. It's related to C, right? C, C prime, those who do evil will suffer, suffer tribulation, verse 9. So verse C, or, or C and C prime, they go together. It's talking about those who do evil. And then B prime, those who do good will receive glory, verse 10. That goes with B, those who do good. All right, so you see how it's coming in and now it's just walking its way back out? And, and you've got A, God will judge everyone impartially, that, or A prime. That goes with A, God will judge. So it's about God. So if you look on the left there, the A, B, C, C, B, that forms one half of an X. All right, this, this, is, this is very normal in Jewish literature, very normal. We typically don't write this way in the Western world. But this is all over the place in the Old Testament. And Paul uses it here. Now, the main point in this chiasm is at the beginning and at the end. And, and that is that God will judge each person impartially according to his deeds. So first thing I want to do is just look at what the text teaches, and then we're going to try to understand how this fits into Paul's teaching that we are saved by grace through faith alone apart from our works. So first major point here, every person will stand before God in judgment. That's going to happen. Hebrews 9.27 makes this point. It says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after this, the judgment now, that verse right there refutes reincarnation. Our text and every other scripture that touches on the topic shows clearly that there are two and only two destinations after death, eternal life and eternal wrath. Some argue that the wicked will be annihilated after a time of punishment. And, and frankly, that would be an easier view to accept than the eternality of hell. 
But one verse sheds an awful lot of light on this. It's Matthew 25, verse 46. Jesus contrasts the punishment of the wicked with the reward of the righteous. And here's what he says. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, there you have it. Both of those words are used. One is for eternal punishment, and it's the same word. One is for eternal life. According to Jesus, life is eternal, punishment is eternal. Now, in Romans 2, Paul contrasts these two eternal destinies. And, it, and you've either got one of the two. There's no in-between. There's no hybrid Right? That's a big word for us today, especially when you talk about cars and what have you. There's no such thing as a hybrid salvation. It's one or the other. Uh, so A, eternal life, Paul says, includes glory, honor, immortality, and peace. Those four things. Eternal life means life pertaining to the age to come. In other words, after death. And since that age will not end, it means life that goes on forever. So that's one definition of eternal life. It just goes on and on and on. It never stops. For those who are in Christ, that's a glorious thing. If you're not, that's, that's not so glorious, okay, to be under God's wrath forever. But eternal life also refers to the quality of life in the very presence of God. In his high priestly prayer there in John 17, Jesus says this, This is eternal life that they may know you, talk, he's praying to God, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now as such, eternal life begins the moment that we come to know God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now it grows sweeter as we grow to know him better in this life. But it's going to be uh, indescribably deepened and forever expanded the moment we step into God's presence in eternity, free from all sin. Paul describes this eternal, eternal life, as I said, by four words, glory, honor, and immortality, that's verse 7, and then peace in verse 10. Well, glory refers to the hope of all believers, that we will be transformed into the image of God's Son so that God's glory can be reflected in us. Honor, that's similar to glory. It focuses on the approval that God will give us in contrast to the scorn that the world gives us now and also in contrast to the eternal disgrace that God will pour out on the wicked. To receive honor will be to hear from the Lord Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, all glory and honor that we receive in heaven is, is immediately going to be turned back to the risen lamb as we sing according to Revelation. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created now, immortality, we talked about that a little bit last week, right? It means you don't die. That refers to the hope of the resurrection, when we will receive new bodies that are, that are not subject to disease, aging, and death. Paul says that those who seek for glory, honor, and, and immortality receive eternal life. But in the parallel verse, that's in verse 7, in verse, the parallel verse in verse 10, he mentions glory and honor, but he substitutes peace for immortality. Now, peace has a couple of definitions, believe it or not. Peace refers to peace with God, 
No more enmity. The hostility is gone. We're at peace with God. But also the peace of heart and mind in the full enjoyment of God for all eternity. It's the eternal peace of deliverance from sin and all of its conflicts. Now, these four terms show that as believers, our hope is, is not in this short life, but in eternal life with God. And that's why Paul, he says in, in Colossians 3 that we should be seeking the things above where Christ is, because when he appears, Paul says, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Paul also mentions the other destiny, right? That's B, eternal wrath and indignation include tribulation and distress. Paul says that the wicked receive wrath and indignation from God, that's verse 8, resulting in tribulation and distress, that's in verse 9. Now, wrath is the usual, usual word for God's settled and abiding opposition to sin. With the purpose of vengeance, uh, God warns, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, indignation, that indicates the more turbulent, boiling agitation of the feelings. Wrath, as in 118, Romans 118, which I've already quoted twice, it's the same word. That's God's abiding anger towards the ungodly. Whereas indignation points to the outbreak of his anger on the day of judgment. Now, tribulation and distress, that describes the trauma experienced by those who are the object of God's wrath and indignation. Tribulation means pressure. It's illustrated by a form of capital punishment where the victim had heavy weights placed on their chest until it crushed them to death. Yeah, that's tribulation. Uh, or excuse me, that's distress. Um, no, that's tribulation. Distress refers to restriction or confinement. It's illustrated by the torture that Queen Elizabeth used on some of her victims who were placed in a room so small that they couldn't stand, sit, or lie at full length. They were confined. Together, Paul uses these words here to describe the eternal punishment of every soul of man who does evil. Now, soul here refers to the entire person. Those in hell will, will suffer conscious torment. Paul says, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That's first, or 2 Thessalonians 1.9. The Bible consistently uses frightening descriptions of the agonies of hell. You don't want to go there. So Paul clearly says that every person will stand before God in judgment, resulting in either eternal life or eternal wrath. Well, point number two, God will impartially judge each person according to his deeds. In Romans 2.6, Paul is actually quoting from, Romans, or from Psalm 62.12, and I was surprised this week, and I read through the Scripture once a year, the whole Bible, and I promise you, Psalm 62.12 was in my passage as I'm reading this week. And I went, wait a minute, and I check, and sure enough, it's the same verse. God does that sometimes. There's three things to note about God's judgment of our deeds. A, judgment according to one's deeds, that is the uniform teaching of the Bible. 
Uh, it's the in, invariable teaching of the Bible and not the particular viewpoint of any one writer or a group of writers. The judgment will be on the basis of works, though salvation is all of grace. Works are important. They're the outward expression of what the person is deep down. Now, in the believer, they're the expression of faith. The reason we do good works is because of our faith. In the unbeliever, they're the expression of unbelief, and that by, uh, whether by way of legalism or antinomianism. I, I can't be exhaustive here, but I want to give you a few examples uh, uh, from both the Old and New Testaments that really show this point. Uh, Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. That's pretty clear. Jeremiah 32, 19, the prophet in prayer describes God as giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Ezekiel thirty three twenty, the Lord says, O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. Matthew 16, 27, this is Jesus speaking. He says, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment, he's talking to believers here, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Galatians 6, 7 and 8, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Ephesians 5, 6, after describing the evil deeds of the wicked, Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the evil deeds, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Revelation 2.23, this is to the church at uh, Thyatira. Um, he, he, he's, he's telling how he will judge those who join in the immorality and the idolatry of the woman Jezebel. He warns the church saying, I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Revelation 20, verse 12, at the great white throne judgment says the dead were, ju were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Revelation twenty two twelve. this is at the end of the Bible. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. Now, do you catch my drift? It is literally all over the Bible. The uniform teaching of Scripture is that God will judge each one of us according to our deeds. So that's A. B, judgment is going to be individual. I hope you heard it in those verses that we just read. The use of the words each person, it shows that this, indi this is individual judgment. It's not corporate or national. Paul uses the same phrase in 2 Corinthians 5.10, each one may be recompensed for his deeds. Or Matthew 27, or Matthew 16 and Revelation 22, Jesus says he will render to every man according to his deeds. So judgment is on an individual basis. 
But see, judgment will be impartial. Now, this is inherent in the fact that God is a righteous judge. Do you remember Abraham? God is fixing to go strike Sodom. And uh, Abraham feels in a bargaining mood. <laughs> and he says, he asks a question to God. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And then he begins his case. It, are you going to kill the righteous with the wicked? And the bargaining begins. But it's that first statement, shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? Yes, he will. Now, again, there are many verses in the Old and New Testaments that show that God judges impartially. Here, Paul especially is saying to the Jews that they're not going to get special treatment just because they are the children of Abraham. When he says in verses 9 and 10, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, he means that the Jews were first in privileges. God had chosen to reveal himself to the nation of Israel, and he brought the Savior through them so that they're going to be first in line for either judgment or salvation. In the same way today, growing up in a Christian home gives you greater access to salvation if you repent of your sins and believe in Christ, but it also exposes you to greater judgment if you neglect that privilege. But the point is, God will judge impartially each person according to his or her deeds. Well, the third major point here is God is the one, He is the judge who determines whether a person's deeds are good or evil. Paul describes two groups here. A, those who persevere in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Now, we've already looked at the meaning of, of those words. Here, I just note that it's those who persevere in doing good seek after those eternal blessings. Perseverance, that indicates a lifelong persistence in the face of opposition and hardship and discouragement. It's not referring to perfection, but rather to a direction or a seeking over the long haul. It's a path. It's a journey that one commits himself to. Well, B, that's, that's one, that they persevere in doing good works. B, those who do evil, they're described as selfishly ambitious disobedient to the truth, and obedient to unrighteousness. Now, some of you Bible scholars, you can look it up for me. That's the only place I'm aware of that it talks about being obedient to unrighteousness. Usually it just says you're unrighteous, <laughs> not you're obeying unrighteousness. Scholars debate about the meaning of the word translated selfishly ambitious. Now, most now take it that way, although some think that it has a nuance of being factious or contentious. In fact, Paul lists it as a deed of the flesh in, in Galatians 5.20. The NASB there renders it disputes, one who causes disputes. But Paul also uses it in Philippians 1.17 to describe those who oppose him, Paul, by proclaiming Christ uh, out of selfish ambition rather than out of pure motives. Now, whatever the translation, the word points to those who are selfish in their motivation, they do what they do to promote themselves, to feed their own pride. They don't live for God's glory. God will judge not only outward behavior, but also our motives, why we do what we do. Paul also says, also says in verse 8 that they do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. 
They do evil in verse 9. They don't submit to God's Word they, or seek to please Him by obeying His commands. Rather, they live to please themselves in disregard of God's Word. So at this point, the crucial question is this, which path are you on? Are you doing good as you seek for glory and honor and immortality? Or are you doing evil as you live for yourself, as you disobey God's truth, as you obey unrighteousness? Maybe you're thinking, I kind of do both depending on the situation. Well, you can't, this is a line you can't straddle. You can't go two, down two roads heading in opposite directions at the same time. That's not how it works. You've got to choose the path of righteousness that leads to eternal life and then persevere on that path. So how do you get on the right path? Well, this is our last point here, number four. The way to persevere in doing good is to experience the power of God for salvation through believing the gospel. Now here we're going to come to grips with the question, is Paul contradicting himself? Is he saying that we're saved by works? But later he clearly says that we're saved by faith. So which is it? Now I assume that Paul was smart enough not to contradict him in the space of just a couple of chapters. He's already said about the gospel that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power of God that saves us is not anything that sinful people can affect by their works. In other words, it's not earnable. It's God's resurrection power by which He imparts new life to those who were dead in their sins. God speaks and He creates light out of the darkness. He makes us new creatures. He changes our hearts. He gives us new desires. Formerly, we loved the darkness and hated the light, kind of like a cockroach. But once we're saved, all of a sudden, we hate the darkness and we love the light. By nature, we're going to learn in chapter 3 early on, there is none who seeks for God. Now, Paul's actually quoting one of the Psalms there. But here we see people who persevere in seeking for glory and honor and immortality, which can only come from God. What explains the change? Well, they have experienced the power of God in salvation by believing in Jesus Christ. Here's the crux of the matter. Genuine saving faith always results in a life of good deeds. Good deeds are not the basis of salvation, but rather the evidence of it. In Ephesians chapter 2, this is a verse, you know, the first two you're very familiar with, you should be with the third. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, uh, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, that's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We're very the very next verse, look what it says. For we are His, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works do not earn salvation, but they're essential evidence that a person is on the path to glory and honor and immortality. You understand that we have to lean on God's grace not only for salvation, 
but also for perseverance in doing good works. So in the end, we are going to be judged by our works, which reveal whether our faith in Christ is genuine or whether it's merely an empty profession. Paul and James, they end up saying the same thing. Your faith is demonstrated by your works. Now, two concluding thoughts here quickly. First, to think that you will get into heaven without good works simply because you prayed a prayer a, a long time ago or because you claim to believe in Jesus, it's kind of foolish. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Do you see it? He who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter. That's good works. Genuine conversion means that God has changed your heart. If the direction of your life is not to do good out of love for God, then you need to examine yourself. You may need to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus for salvation. Well, the second closing point here is um, live with your sights on eternity and the hope of hearing, well done from the Lord who knows your heart. Would you have lived differently last week if your mind had been on that great day when we will go to the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ? Would you have spent your time differently? Would you have treated others differently? If God exists, and we know He does, and He promises to reward those who persevere in doing good, and to punish those who live selfishly in sin, it's foolish to live for this short life only. What is it, 50 to 100 years? And it's over. Since God will impartially judge each person, that means you, there's coming a day when you're going to stand before God personally. Since he's going to judge each of us according to our deeds, the message this morning is we need to persevere in doing good in light of eternity. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace. We see it clearly that we are saved by grace through faith, but there's coming a day when we'll, we will be judged according to our deeds. So, Father, I pray that you'd help us to recognize these two paths of life that we talked about. One, that leads to eternal life, because we're seeking good and glory and honor and immortality and peace. But the other, in selfishness, will simply lead to, your, your, to God's eternal wrath. So, God, speak that truth into our hearts. Father, is there anybody here that doesn't know you this morning, I pray that you would open their eyes so they can see the truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you're out there this morning and, and you have never come to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. I encourage you this morning, lay aside everything that you think that you can bring to God. Typically what people think that they're going to bring to God is this, I've done more good than I've done bad. Do you understand that, that even if that's true, that doesn't merit you anything. You've still done bad. That has to be accounted for. Paul says that if you've sinned, or James, excuse me, if you sinned in, 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 in one thing, then you're guilty of the whole law. 
We stand condemned. And that's Paul's point. We stand condemned before God. What is it that makes the difference? He ends it up there in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Then you go to 6.23. What's 6.23? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. That's what we've been talking about. It's a gift from God. It's eternal life. Have you received that gift? It's simply by faith, by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, denouncing your sin. That's what repentance is, is turning from your sin, admitting that you're a sinner. We don't like doing that. Nobody likes doing that, but you have to do it before you come to God. Admit you're a sinner. Ask Him to forgive you. Trust Christ with your salvation, with your eternal life, and God will save you. It's not difficult. I encourage you this morning, if you don't know God in that way, take steps towards it today. That may be just coming up and talking to me during the invitation or after the service. Find me after the service. Find somebody that you trust, that you know is a Christian and knows the Lord. Talk to them. Get moving on it. If you're a believer, I hope you understand uh, the point of the message really was kind of for you. It, it, this is a message that's for everybody. We're not going to gain salvation by our works, but our works are going to have something to say about our eternity. We're going to be judged according to our works. As believers, I hope you're producing good works. That may be as simple as being friendly to your neighbor and showing them the love of Christ that way. What it's all about is doing good deeds that will lead to glory and honor and immortality. I hope that's the path that you're on this morning as a follower of Christ. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.